This is 1 Corinthians 16, and it covers the first four verses. Paul tells us, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches in Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is God's Word, and let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for another Sunday, for songs to sing truth about who you are and what you've done, for those brothers and sisters of ours seated beside us, to encourage us, to keep us accountable, but all together to study your word, to understand your mind, to be able to obey your commands. And we ask all this in your precious name. Amen. Now, first off, uh, any discussion about giving in this context, I, I think, must begin with an understanding of God's first giving us everything that we have. Um, Namely, salvation. That would be the, the greatest treasure he has ever given us. And it's open to the whole world. Whosoever believes shall not perish but have every, everlasting life. Now there's a verse in Psalm 14 that a lot of folks will refer to when we're talking about God and what he owns and who he is. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I suppose if you wanted to summarize the... the ramifications of such a statement. When you've given God all that you have and all that you are, you've only given God what is already His own. You can't outgive Him. And really, it's only a stewardship. Uh, if you wanted to turn to the New Testament, there's something, again, from Paul in Romans 11. This is verse 34. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been His counselor? As, as if He needs us to teach Him something, no, he already knows everything. And then he follows, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. Uh, isn't it tough at Christmas trying to buy gifts for people? Isn't it tough buying a gift for your dad? What, what does he not already have? Figure out what you would give to the Lord who has it all anyway. Where it's quite the conundrum. So let's make sure we know all this before we even get started. And then when we're sitting in a church talking about money, usually um, the thought that comes to mind first would be the thought of a tithe. I've heard that word so many times since I was a child, but most of the world doesn't even know what that word means. Now, it sounds a lot like tenth because it is a tenth. The tenth is the tithe, the tithe is the tenth, the 10% of your income and I thought we'd begin by just saying, what does the Bible say about tithing? Because you go off to Bible school and you're shocked to find out how little it actually says about that word. First of all, tithing, and for the most part, it's early in the Old Testament, but it was the basic pattern of giving to the Lord's work in the Old Testament. Remember, your Bibles are separated in two. There's 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books. New Testament is far smaller as far as word count. But the Old Testament's where all your stories from Sunday school come from. Well, there, to support the work of the Lord's ministry under a theocracy where 
They didn't have a president or a king. God ruled them. And that's what God said, so that's what they did. It was all the Hebrews, and they were to set aside a tenth of their gain. We find this in Leviticus 27 and again in Numbers 18. Now, as far as the New Testament goes, we do not see tithing held up as a pattern for giving. In fact, there's only one place that you're even going to see the word that refers back to the idea of tithing. And that's in Matthew 23 where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Then he calls them hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. We talked about this first last week, remember? He said we've got a starter kit for, uh, what was it? Uh, Gum or pickles or chili beans. Because those are spices. You usually don't put them all in the same thing. But... But they're tithing down to their herb garden to make sure they do everything perfect. When Jesus says, you've neglected the weightier matters of the law. I'm looking for justice, mercy, and faithfulness, and I'm not seeing that. I don't need your, your herb garden if I don't have your faithfulness. That was basically the, the message last week. Well, we cover these things in new members. In fact, most of this comes right out of our new members class on, I think it's the last of our eight weeks together. But if, if you take the notion that the two testaments don't really have much to do with each other, then the lessons on tithing are basically over for the church today. Because there's a big difference in the way things were in the Old Testament and the way things are in the New Testament, under law or under grace, if you want to put it that way. But if you believe correctly that the New Testament will only make sense when you start reading it in Genesis 1, that the whole Bible comes together, we can't really understand the New Testament without the Old Testament, then maybe that discussion isn't over. But we'll have to see. We'll have to study. We'll have to pay attention to things. Now, don't start writing in your notes, Isaac is fixing to teach a non-tithing scriptural view of giving. Don't do that because it's not what I'm saying. And there's more to this message. But some of us like to jump to conclusions, don't we? <laughs> I do. I'm usually judging the sermon by its introduction long before its body's over at the conclusion. And sometimes I just like ramble a little bit while the ambulance goes by. <laughs> That's basically what I'm doing right now. <laughs> All right. What I am trying to do this morning is to help you clearly see what the Bible does say and then make sure that we know what to do with what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible ruins a lot of good preaching when you find out it doesn't say what some of those sermons you've heard were all about. Uh, and this goes for all Bible passages, not just ones on giving, but this is a good place to say such things. If you can clearly see what your Bible says then when you listen to sermons or read commentaries or devotionals or study notes, you can tell if the writers of such things are being faithful to the Bible as it is. But in order to do that, you've got to know your Bibles. And to know your Bibles, you have to read your Bibles. And reading's not enough. You've got to study your Bibles. You're smart people. God saved you, gave you the Holy Spirit. There's your interpreter. But it's on you to digest these things, think through them, and live your life in obedience to what they say. 
Remember, if someone will put something in the Bible where it really isn't, then they might take something out of the Bible where it really is. Both of those are no good. So the point is, we're, we're, we're students today. We're, we're looking at these things trying to answer our questions. And I don't care if it's your pastor. If it doesn't square with Scripture, it's no good. Don't listen to him. Fire him if he gets off in left field and stays there. What does the New Testament say not about tithing, because we already learned it's not there except where Jesus kind of references it. And he does say, doesn't he, you should have done those things, but you shouldn't have neglected the other things. So he didn't get rid of it, but he never picked it up and talked about it. Neither does any of the other apostles. So let's not get confused here and throw out giving with the tithe, because the New Testament does have something to say about giving just not the mechanism of tithing. So to be clear, in the Old Testament, tithing was the pattern. You want to talk about giving? Well, we got a tithe for that. But you get to the New Testament, and that pattern's not mentioned. But giving is mentioned a lot. So what we can't do is make the mistake of confusing the pattern with the principle. The principle survives. The principle has got to be a principle because the principle is based off God's character. And He's a giving, generous God. So his children have to be generous in giving. It's just he's not going to make them do it by use of a compulsory tax called a tithe in the Old Testament. Back when they were having a hard time getting started. The, the, the first act of business was, what, wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years? So what does the New Testament say about giving? A lot. Uh, it tells us where to give generously. tells us where to give cheerfully. tells us where to give sacrificially. Tells us what attitude we're supposed to have when we give. There's a lot of stuff. Way too much to talk about this morning. But what we often see in the New Testament, under grace, we got to remember, is this type of giving that has no set standard, like the percentage that tithe was based on. But in its place, we see a free will generosity that wouldn't view tithing as a floor or a ceiling. You can give less, but you can also give more. Now, here's the problem. I think a lot of people like holding on to that tithe, at least from a a place like this, because you'd rather have 10 than nothing. And I think there's a lot of people sitting in the pews that say, I can handle a tenth because I know how to divide what I've got into tenths. And uh, as long as all you need is a tenth, I can handle a tenth. Because it's capped. Right? How many of you like an adjustable interest rate? (laughs) If you're earning interest. But what if you're paying interest? (gasps) Cap that bad boy. (laughs) Then I know what I'm up against. Get to the New Testament, we lose the cap. We lose the ceiling. And you can't go beneath the floor of nothing because we're going to learn that he expects something. Nobody is ever expected from God nothing. It's always something. So let's keep moving. Does this make sense? Given the New Testament teaching on generosity, some possibly on this side of the cross might rather opt for the old standard because it's fixed where it's variable in the New Testament. I wrote something down here just because it came to my brain and I thought maybe it'll help us think through it. What if that 1% that everybody likes to talk about, you know, in the media, the 
Um, what if the 1% just woke up one morning and decided to give 10% of what they had away? What would that look like? Well, the 1%, I'm told, hold more wealth than all of the middle class together. You could shake a market with that 10%, right? Now, what does that have to do with this message? Nothing. I just wanted to bring it up to help you understand how easy it is for all of us to want to spend other people's money or tell them what to do with it. Now, they don't want to be told what to do with it. And last time I checked, it's still a free country. They can do whatever they want to with it. But as Christians, it's different. God gave it all to us. We know He owns it all. And sometimes He'll ask some of that back from us. If He wants us in on something, He's doing. That's basically the idea. So we can say, so far, the New Testament does not teach the tithe as a pattern for giving, but neither does it set it aside. There's no verses for that either. Is it then not unreasonable to consider the possibility that the New Testament presupposes our giving under grace would be equal to or more than God's people's giving under the law? And I only say grace and law because God's going to leave it to you in the New Testament, but He made it compulsory. It was law in the Old Testament. But that's all we could say because Scripture hasn't said any more than that. So from here on, you've got to be the judge of these things. So that's, that's the prelude to the passage we read. What we've got in the passage we read is really not a situation where this is how you maintain the operational needs of your local church. What he's talking about here is a missionary offering to support uh, the poor in Jerusalem. And we could go into why there were poor people in Jerusalem. That would take us time We've gone through some of those things in Acts because in several places in Acts and other places in uh, the epistles, this offering is spoken about. This is what he took to, to Jerusalem with him when he got into trouble and uh, was barely beaten to death. Uh, all that with the centurion, all those court trials, it began with his trip to Jerusalem to take this offering we're talking about. But what we do find in here... Is, is some high-dollar advice. Only if you think consulting is worth its, it, its price, right? Consulting is big bucks. You, you hire an expert, you get them to tell you, what should we do? So if we're scrounging around in the Scriptures trying to find out how to give, and we could find where the Apostle Paul told us how to do it, that'd be worth something, right? That's what we've got here. It's not much, but it's a, it's a pattern, a pattern for giving and how to do it. And then before we leave, uh, I'll show you another pattern for how to do um, not operational needs or missionary budgeting, but say some need that comes up and it's a need, so how do we handle it? Well, if we look at that passage, um, he says, Now concerning the collection for the saints... As I directed the churches of Galatia. So he's told this to more than, than one outfit, more than one church. So you also are to do. The word collection here, we can define some terms. That's in reference to just a, a mechanism. How do they get the money from the giver's account to the receiver's account? Uh, they, they don't have an app like we do where you can set up a you know, reoccurring draft. They had to collect it. So the collection is the mechanism. 
by which they received the offering. The offering's the giving, but the collection's the mechanism. We used to pass plates before COVID told us that was a dumb idea. <laughs> right? And then since then, uh, trying to figure out whether or not we need to do it again. And the reason why they passed them in the past was just a practical reason. Practically speaking, is it better not to? Does it work as good up here and back there? I wish I had a crystal ball to tell me. You'll quote that probably. Preacher uses a crystal ball. No, it's just a joke. I don't know the answer to that question. Paul says in verse 2, On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. So we've gone far enough we can say the first of three principles for biblical giving, according to Paul the Apostle, is regularity. First day of the week, that's regular, isn't it? Now, could you do 15th of the month, 3rd of the month? Maybe you get paid on the 4th of the month. Maybe it's the second Sunday, but it's monthly. I don't know that that is a big a deal because regularly for this group seems to be weekly. But regularly is the, the idea. Well, what if I just want to do it at the end of the year when I settle my taxes? That's once a year. Well, if you're talking about your whole life, you could call that regularly, but... As far as accounting books, I don't know if regularly is the first thing that comes to mind if it's just once a year. Regularly. There's, there's got to be something good for you, good for the Lord's work, and good for your relationship with Him to go through the, should I say, hassle of, of looking at this weekly or biweekly or monthly. And I thought about this totally different before COVID. And I would write the check out every week. And it would grieve me when I forgot it. And it was always because of something that came up and messed my habit up. And then during COVID, I automated it. And I thought, isn't this just sad? Before you know it, we'll have one of them swipe machines in the foyer somewhere. <laughs> no, we don't. We've got phones in our pockets where we can do the same thing. Times change the way we do things change. And now at 44, with the life as busy as it's ever been, I'm not going to say that it's not the faithful thing to automate your giving if that's how it gets done. Because Paul, after all, is saying, why is he doing this? So I don't have to take a collection when I get there and cold call you. It's already stored up because you've mechanized it or automated it or you write your check out every week, however you do it. It needs to be regularly. And who does that go for? Sad to say, each of you. Nobody's out of the mix here. Well, I can't afford it. Tell the Lord. This is, this is the rough part. This is where it's not fun to be up here. I have to say what the book says. The book says, through Apostle Paul, inspired as it is, each of you. Now, how much? We'll get to that in a minute. But right now, it just says something. So, if nothing's disobedient, then what would obedient look like? Skip one of those coffees and bring five bucks next week and you're obedient. Now, is that the way you should do it? No, ask the Lord how you should do it. But that's something rather than nothing. It can be done. They say, you don't know what that coffee does for me. <laughs> you're right, I don't. I don't drink it. But those bubble waters are different. I have to have those. Um... All right, let's look at number two. Before we get to two, I have a little more. On the giving side, it's harder to forget if you've not got a plan. 
uh, or if you do have a plan, planning to do something is planning. Planning not to do something is planning not to do it at all. He's specific. Regularity is directive. He says it has to be regular. But then you get to the second point, and he doesn't say how much. The second principle is that your giving be proportionate. Look at the rest of the verse. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. Kind of sounds, I don't know what you use with prosper. Do you think prosper is just scratching by? No, prosper is when you've, you've, you've got something. Now, I don't know if someone who's prospering would say they have any extra money. But there is something to give where some people truly have very, very, very little. So it kind of seems like proportionate means, hey, back to those parables, to much is given, much is required. I don't think that would be a stretch. Maybe he hasn't given you much yet. Well, back to the parables. Faithful with a little. You may be faithful with a lot. And that could be just responsibility. Hey, you did good with the firstborn. We'll give you six or eight more. Right? So the second principle, proportionate. Question is, how much? That's the question everybody wants to know. It simply means in keeping with your income. So it sounds like Paul's leaving it up to you before the Lord. That's because Paul knows that God searches the heart. And Paul knows the Lord will be a better means of asking your generosity than he will be. Because you might just give because it's Paul. And that wouldn't be the right thing to do. He knows that if you're giving according to your prosperity, that's God. That's not Paul, because Paul might not know. And good pastors don't know who gives what. And again, where does that prosperity come from? God has provided for you. It'll be God who requires of you. It'll be up to you to obediently respond. So you've heard it said, and I used to remember preaching where this is just railed on, the idea, well, it's just between me and the Lord. Um, that's actually biblical, says Paul. It just needs to be something. It needs to be regular. So when I get there, I have something to take back. But what it is, that's between you and the God who saved you. And if we think about it, if we're going to be held accountable for every idle word that we speak, I think we'll probably give an account for every red cent we spend. I wish it wasn't that way, but I'm, I'm afraid it is. And I can understand why some ministries would rather minimize this type of conversation. Don't I understand? It's not easy to talk about because it's private. In truth, though, what favors is any church doing its membership by not preparing them for the judgment they'll face that's coming, ready or not, when it's time. So that's, that's what we're doing. We're looking for the answers to the questions we have in Scripture and then holding each other accountable as having done so. And then there's the third principle, and this is a good one too, and it's in verse 3. When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. All this language is to demonstrate the presence of integrity. So the third principle of biblical giving, the first was what? Needs to be regular. Second, it needs to be proportionate. And the third, it needs to be administrated properly. That's once you've given it. What does the church do with it? 
He's saying here that I'm going to let you pick the guys who carry it to Jerusalem. They can come with me. That's cool. But you'll know it's taken care of because they'll be your guys who are accredited by letter. When the letter gets to where it's going, hey, these guys that we sent brought you this much money so that no funny business goes on. Um, I don't know if you knew, but I've never worked at a church where I could sign a check. You're not supposed to. Not the guy who's doing the talking. And I've never worked in a church where you didn't need more than one signature on the line to do the check. That's good too. Other than a conference budget uh, and a little bit of moving expense reimbursement left over that we should uh, get rid of here in the next couple months, even that, got to turn in evidence of having made the expenditure and then get reimbursed later. That's called administrated properly. There's a reason why we have these business meetings and show you the budget. There's a reason why the church has uh, submitted itself to reviews and audits in the past. Make sure everything is done well and right and honest and transparent. That's important because why would you want to give your money to the Lord and hand it to a crook? That wouldn't make sense. So that point is important as the rest of them. Give it regularly, make it proportional, and then have it administrated properly. We're not without our means for stewardship, accounting, transparency, and that's all for the purpose of uh, living our Bibles. Okay, we've covered our three points. What's left to say? Usually this is where we kind of transition over into a what's in this for me type thing or what's in this for Wake Chapel, if you want to call it that. Ultimately, this is a personal thing, a private thing. That's why it's so difficult to talk about. But there's this other verse I want to show you. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Sacrifices please the Lord. Now, he, he called Abraham to sacrifice his son, and then he stopped him, right? Um, we know of people who lied about a sacrifice and then dropped dead in church. Sacrifice is part of this story, too. That, that, that's why I bring them, this up. We'll come back to it. As to giving in support of your local church ministry, because that's what we said we would, would talk about, the hard truth of it is, and it shouldn't come as a, as a surprise, much less a shock to anyone, that your local church needs your giving to carry out its operations. I know it's tough to buy groceries this year. They're crazy expensive. I wouldn't even want to think about trying to buy a car. Even going through what we went through with this parking lot and what things cost. It's not like somebody's trying to get rich. It's just you can't get the materials for any less than insanity. Um, it's just the world we live in at the time. Now, it was different a few years ago. It'll be different a few years from now. Anybody that's ever looked at a stock chart knows it's not linear. It's all over the place. And it moves around. It's the same with your church. Power bill costs more for businesses. Internet costs more. 
bones cost more. Because it's a business and they don't have any idea that it's charitable, it costs. Um, power costs, water costs, toilet paper costs. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. But to meet a church's budget, a church has to support itself. And it seems that's the way it was in the New Testament. It seems that's the way it is now. And I'd be surprised if it's not any different until the Lord comes back. Now, as far as special projects go, that would be over and above your annual budget, wouldn't it? I don't know. Can we think of a situation where we might need to raise money to do something that's not in the budget? Like build another building if we get so big we can't fit in this one? Now, there's another passage of Scripture I'd go for this. This is your special projects passage, and it's from the Old Testament, but it has nothing to do with the tithe, interestingly enough. This is Exodus 25. The Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You're to receive the offering for me from, listen, each man whose heart prompts him to give. Is that everybody? Is that regular? Is that amount mentioned? Nope. This is a free will gift. Kind of like what we see in the New Testament. But Paul says those need to be regular and everybody needs to give something. If you go forward a few chapters, well, 10 chapters, you find the same emphasis, chapter 35, verse 5. This is what the Lord has commanded. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. And everyone who is willing to bring to the Lord... And then there's this long list of stuff you can bring. But it's still whatever you want to do. Now, in um, Exodus 36, actually in the bottom of Exodus 35, verse 21, uh, you see that it's happening. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved him came and brought an offering to the Lord. And what is this offering for, by the way? Their sanctuary. But by the time you get to the next chapter, chapter 36, and verse 6, the thing had gotten so out of hand that God told Moses, and here it is right out of the Scriptures, Moses gave an order that they sent this word throughout the camp. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more. Why? Because what they already had was more than enough to do all the work. So there's one place in the Old Testament where they threw the tithe out the window, and what happened? They built their building, but not before they told everybody, stop it already, we've got enough. Now that's a powerful passage of Scripture, I do believe. And who are these people we're talking about? The ones who griped and bellyached for 40 years? Who talked about Egyptian restaurants they couldn't go to anymore? And the leeks and the whatever else. And then when God gave them the, the, the quail that was coming out their nose almost as if for spite. This was no picnic. But they built their God a sanctuary. Because they needed it. Now we've got a whole process for that. We've got some stuff planned to talk about it later. We're not going to do it in here because there's better things to do in here in the sanctuary than to talk about money. But as, as far as how we're going to get from here to there, it's going to take some education. It's going to take some prayer. It's going to take some generosity. It's going to take a lot of things. And I was thinking about it the other evening. How in the world 
could I explain such a thing? And does it even need explaining? And then I thought, well, I don't know. And then it came to me. And you're going to laugh. Maybe not to begin with, but by the end of it. I'm sure there's some people in this room who've had the experience of living with other individuals to whom you're not related during your college education in a dorm, perhaps. Maybe it's some sort of student housing. Maybe a bunch of people rent a house off campus. Maybe it's on campus. At Liberty, I stayed on a hall, a long one, with a lot of rooms and one huge bathroom. And by the time I graduated, I did get up to the senior dorms, which were quads. It was like an apartment, and you had four rooms with two to a room, so that's eight of us. And if you hadn't had this experience, maybe you can identify with it if you ever went to college, um, or maybe it happened to you. I don't know. I'm not picking about anybody. Uh, This is not completely and totally a first-person account. But let's have fun with it. Let's say... It's exam week. Everybody's on campus. You got an exam in the morning. It's going to be a late night. Somebody decides, hey, let's order pizza. Now, that sounds like a great idea, but you need to know that can go from simple to complicated really fast, right? Because usually somebody will say, that's a great idea. And then somebody else says, who's buying? And then everybody laughs. And we say, we're going to split it. We just got to figure out what we need. About that time, somebody says, I'm okay. What do you mean you're okay? You're going to starve to death. It's a long night. It's the cheapest way you're going to eat. We'll go get it. But you got to buy in. It's cheaper if we get more. About that time, somebody says, well, I want more. I'll buy his. So now make sure we understand this. If you're out, you're out. I'm out. He's buying yours. Got it? Yeah. So one guy's got a quarter and the rest have eights. This is easy. This is pretty decent math. But then there's the next question. What do we put on it? Somebody says, oh, that's stupid. We're just going to go easy. It's pepperoni. It'll be easy. But I don't like pepperoni. You can pick them off. (laughs) Yeah, but if you pick them off, it leaves that orange ring of grease under it. Get a paper towel and blot it up. Well, I want sausage. Well, I'm not getting a whole separate sausage pizza. We'll put it on both and you can pick off the pepperonis. Everybody agreed? Wondrously, everybody's agreed. So they call the pizza place. Guy gets in his car. He'll be back in a few minutes. But let's suppose that somebody, while he's gone, needs a bathroom break. So they go to the bathroom and on their way back, they stick their head in another quad. What are y'all doing? We're studying, dummy. What are you doing? Oh, we took a break. We're going to get some pizza. Y'all got pizza? Really? So about the time the guy gets back with a pizza, he comes back to a quad not of eight people. There's like ten people. And what's bad about it is that while they're trying to count the pieces and divvy up the money, you got these other two guys that they've told to scram who are offering to buy a piece of pizza. Well, if we'd known you'd wanted pizza, we'd have bought more. There's not enough. Somebody's going to have to go without. Well, I'll give you $10 for one piece. Sold. That guy gets in his car and goes, buys a whole pizza and brings it back. But about the time they're settled up, 
There's a tap on the glass, not the window, the glass, because girls can't come in the door, but they can knock on the glass. One of them's girlfriend's there, and she's brought a friend, and they expect charity. Well, might get it out of the boyfriend, but not for her friend. They are girls after all, so somebody's got to be nice. This whole thing's getting crazy, and about that time, the worst thing that could possibly happen happens. You turn and look, and the guy standing over the box looking both ways to see if he can get a piece is the one who was out. He's changed his mind after he smelled it. And then the guy whose idea it was, who went to get the pizza and brought the pizza and has been a peacemaker through the whole thing, goes to get his, only to find one piece left, but it's not a normal piece. It's the type of piece that happens when they cut it too fast and some of it's stuck together. And when the other guy gets his, he rips the face off of that one. So there's nothing but just a piece of bread with some sauce on it, and that's it. And the little, you know, dried up pepper laying in the corner. That's what he gets. Now, why do I bring any of this up? Because even a small church with a handful of people is infinitely more involved than buying pizza at a dorm. But you know how troublesome that is because of just people and the way they are. What we'll have to do is make sure we understand that the reason why kids go to college is to get an education. Pizza is just calories to keep them up until exam time. That's all the pizza is. But the pizza can be a problem if you don't get any, right? (laughs) Or if somebody's perceived to have too much. The purpose for a church is to carry out the Great Commission But we're going to need to burn some resources to make that happen. And as long as we're all in there somehow, some way, and we love each other, and we know who our God is, who owns it all, and he's going to give us what we need, it'll be okay. And we'll pass that exam. Now, hopefully that was of help to you. (laughs) The strange things that run through my mind is how to illustrate stuff. But maybe it helps. Because we'll have to order some pizza. And uh, we'll have to decide what goes on it. And we'll have to decide what we do with the people that show up that we're supposed to minister to. You know, they need pizza. We'll just cook more, right? Or go get more. You carry it too far, it doesn't work. So I think the thing to remember, and if you didn't write anything down yet, write this down, because this is basically the good stuff out of the message. There are two things that are true of the Bible, no matter where you're reading it. It's the Old Testament or the New Testament. It doesn't matter. These principles are the same. First of all, it is always a portion. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not generous or doesn't give at all. A good Christian, that is. One that is living like his Savior or her Savior. So it's always something. It's never nothing and it's never all of it. Not your money, that is. He may require your life, but you'll leave some money behind probably. It's a portion, always. And second of all, sometimes it's a sacrifice. And that's between you and him. If some guy in a slick suit's got a slick speech and he wants to tell you how you can get here by doing that or this or whatever else and he's got all the insight as to what you should do with your money, don't believe him. Unless what he says comes straight out of Scripture. 
and then take the Bible's word for it and consider him a faithful messenger. But none of that slick suit stuff. Sometimes it's a sacrifice. And the key to the sacrifice part of it is not forgetting who's doing the asking because it should be the Lord asking. Not the rest of your church, not your pastor, the Lord. It's his work. He'll be asking. And if the ministry is faithful and you're faithful and your relationship's good, he's got a clear, open signal to speak to you about it. The one who saved us is the one who needs us. Not because he needs us, but because he wants us part of it. Which is an amazing thing altogether. The song we're going to sing as we close this out, I hope will be the reminder we need to remember how good we've got it and who might be doing the asking. And I'll let Noah set that up after we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for your gospel, for the Bible, not only the gospel that we proclaim to save souls, you do the saving, we do the proclaiming, but also insight from veteran missionaries who had skin in the game. I figured out a long time ago that this, this is a good way to do things. And then an old story about building a tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness, how that got done. Lord, it's no problem for you to do whatever you need to do here if it's keeping the lights on or new construction. May you find us faithful. Lord, may we not neglect the weightier matters. Lord, may we love you and love each other. And Lord, thank you for speaking. We ask all this in your name. Amen.